Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about autism stories. Now, before we get to today's episode, I did want to mention that recently I had the opportunity to write about my experience for Autism Spectrum News as an entrepreneur and learning to honor my limitations. So if you want to learn about my experience as an autistic entrepreneur, you can check that out in the current issue of Autism Spectrum News. Uh, Check out the podcast description for a link for the article. So we often talk about community here on Autism Stories, and one opportunity for community can be in religious services. So on today's episode, Rabbi Zemach Yora joins us to discuss being a congressional rabbi, his new book, So Compassionate It Hurts, and what he learned about his autistic identity studying ancient wisdom literature. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Rabbi Zemach, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Doug. Yeah, absolutely. Wanted to start out by just learning uh, about your story and where it begins in the autistic community. Absolutely. Well, my story, like I feel a fair number of people in my generation, I'm in my mid 40s, begins with a deep recognition that uh, you're on a different, you're relating to the world differently than the vast majority of the people around you, that you're kind of out of sync. And I had that recognition in myself from early childhood. Something was always off, I would say. And I didn't have any language about what was off. My parents, I would say, are good parents. They try to acknowledge the symptoms, like not being able to look people in the eye, you know, not distinguishing between right and left. Um, and they, But they couldn't, you know, treat, they couldn't acknowledge or help with the actual situation I was in because there weren't there there was simply not a language around it in the 80s and so that persisted into into adulthood I would say and I I kept on searching for for answers I and eventually I read an autobiography of somebody on the spectrum and I said wow that kind of like kind of check 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 and that's when I kind of okay I'm (laughs) that's the beginning of my journey and I would say I kind of kept it to myself then like I kind of figured like who cares I am an academic there are lots of academics that fit my uh, fit my profile you know generally it's my own idiosyncratic situation or whatever that's how I felt about it I didn't I didn't really you know if somebody brought it up I would acknowledge it but it was not really I didn't see it core to the way I looked at the world and that shifted I would say fairly profoundly in the past five years and it began with uh, me becoming a rabbi of the community, but also having a son who is on a deeper band of the spectrum than I am. And I think got a diagnosis of autism when he was four. And, you know, so that's, and those two things have shaped 
my identity as part of the autistic community greatly and uh, and really shifted the way I think about it my desire to advocate not you know I'm not alone out there connect to other people on the spectrum offer inspiration offer a place for people uh, who are neurotypical atypical beyond people on the spectrum I have a platform to do so to advocate and I'm trying to now use that platform to, for the benefit of people with difference in general now, one of the first things that popped into my mind when learning about you and that you're a rabbi, in, in some ways, has nothing to do with you, and it's your, your congregation. So when um, they learn that, that you're, you are autistic, I guess I'm assuming they, they know, what have been some of the feedback you've received, maybe positive or maybe not so positive from them? There were psychologists, a number of them on, my, on the search committee that hired me uh, as a rabbi. So they were quite cognizant of where I landed. One of the psychologists on the search committee has a son who is on the spectrum as well. Like she, there, there's no, there was no lack of knowledge of who they were hiring. And I really find, found that to be admirable. <laughs> Meaning, you know, the idea that uh, somebody, you know, that a group of people will see beyond autism and see the attributes that I bring, the gifts that I bring to the job, that really impressed me greatly about this community from the outset. And I was like, I, cause I was, and my interview process, process was one of bemusement. I like, I had no expectation actually of getting the job because like what, I just don't, I just really do not fit the profile of a congregational rabbi. So there was an acknowledgement right away and there was offers. I got coaching on how to do small talk, <laughs> which is something that you have to do as, as, a, as a pastor leader, <laughs> you know, schmoozing, they call it in, in Yiddish. And also I got, uh, I got coaching in public speaking, you know, how to modulate, how to speak, you know, modulate tone, modulate volume, acknowledgement that that was not my strong suit. And that was there from the beginning. So that was very, very, po I would say overall, very, very positive. I would say the one somewhat not positive, I wouldn't go so far as to call it negative, is that I was asked, especially in the past year and a half, when I became more involved in this book project and such, to not overly emphasize being on the spectrum in my sermons or, or speak, as I spoke to the congregation, because the, the thought was that if I overemphasize that, I would be pushing people away. That, you know, because you are on the spectrum, you can't talk to people who are not on the spectrum or talk to neurotypical people and such. You know, that, that kind of, you know, they acknowledge that that wasn't the case, but they thought that some people might think that and wanted me to tone those parts of my sermons down. And I would say that I pushed back at that to some degree, but, but I have toned it down to touch in response. So yeah, that I would say, but overall, going back to what I said initially, very, very positive. I would say the congregation has been very positive and have added, they've asked me how you know, people, when I started talking about the book, people have talked to me, so how can we support people on the spectrum? How can we support your diversity? How can we support you? And that's, I would say the vast majority of people. And you were just, you mentioned not feeling like you fit the profile of a congregational rabbi. You know, in what ways do you feel like you don't fit? Well, what what would you say the profile is, and then how do you feel like you don't fit that? 
I would say somebody who's naturally extroverted uh, is more likely to be a congregational rabbi. Somebody who has natural connections, can establish natural connections to people, can make do function well with eye contact, can can play a room. Those are attributes that are you know associated with being a rabbi. I am not extroverted at all. I mean, I'm quite highly introverted, and I don't have those. You know, I I don't have a great memory for faces. It's a uh, and those are you know that's the that's the profile of gregariousness i'm not a particularly gregarious person yeah, you know i don't i don't really fit uh, the profile from that perspective but i would say like again it balances out there are things that i bring to the rabbinate that somebody who is fixed that profile would, might not bring and that's why i say i've always thought you know it, the book, the idea is ironic that I you would become a congregational rabbi, but if you read the book, you discover that it's not ironic, and I actually, this is actually something that I could do and do well, and, that, and it just takes a little bit of a shift in thinking about it. Now, o- oftentimes when people think about employment and accommodations, they think about the employees th- themselves, but maybe not so much someone that might be in a position like you and be the leader of the organization. Yeah. So I'm wondering what accommodations have you needed from your temple, from your congregation to be the best rabbi you can be? So as I said, they were from the outset very cognizant of where I was coming from. They offered me coaching uh, that I paid for by the congregation and were generous about it. You know, they had it renewed and then they offered me like guidance, you know, from a, you know, an acknowledged uh, a public orator you know, as much as I wanted on that score. So they so that was, they got right away. And I would say that that's, you know, not something you generally offer regular employees at your organization, which is, might be a little bit unfortunate. I mean, you know, that type of thinking, that I have the privilege of being the leader of the organization. So, so they are taking an extra step towards me, whereas employees are not given, necessarily given those extra steps. And that's, you know, I, I regard that as not fair or equitable, but, but you know, that, that is the case. Otherwise, let's see, what other accommodations? Beyond that, I'm very, I, I police my time. Like, I am very, very careful about, I'm a half-time employee, and I'm very careful about remaining a half-time employee. Because I know that, for me, like, I cannot, if it gets, if it starts sliding to the full-time, I am unable to... <laughs> to function, to, it will become too hard for me. There will be too much of the, the social headaches and, and being drained, and I could not function well. I guard that. And sometimes that's caused tension, meaning there, there are times such as uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, when I was working, you know, like lots of rabbis, really overtime, meaning I was like working double. And I said, um, I asked for extra pay for that time, and it was respected. But afterwards, that was, you know, it became more of an issue, and I've had to police my time better. You know, I had to slow walk certain things or make sure that I have the right support. That is, I would say, it's more difficult for an organization to do that. And this is a perennial problem with part-time employees, especially rabbis. It's almost never, never is exactly part-time. But I am better able to police that. I'm better able to say to the lay leadership of my institution, hey, I'm overtime. I can't be overtime. You have to do this or this. Uh, otherwise, it becomes too difficult for me. 
other members of the organization would find it much more difficult. Now, I read where you said it's critical to teach tolerance and embrace difference, different family mm -hmm. structures, different gender and sexual orientations, different races yes. and different neural makeups. So what are some things you think rabbis can or should do to make sure that their congregations are embracing all of these differences within their community? So I would say that one of the most important things a rabbi can do is to have people be heard. Make sure that the people, the members of the community are heard. How I do it is like, you know, make sure that there are programs that highlight neurodiversity or programs that highlight LGBTQ identity or, you know, or just one-on-one -on -one conversations with, with people who, who are on the on the spectrum and I or other neurodiversities and just me being very open about it I think being open about where you come from or you know your difference uh, gives an opening for others to say hey the rabbi is modeling this the rabbi is showing that people of difference are members of this community and are valued I also should be valued modeling is the best thing a leader can do I believe like look at yourself as a microcosm of your community, see yourself as uh, live your own life the way you want your community to, to look like. Uh, I try to do that, you know, do I succeed uh, sometimes and sometimes not? I mean, it's, uh, it's always a uh, not straightforward path, but one tries. Now, prior to becoming a rabbi, you were educated at a range of schools from secular to an elite Orthodox yeshiva in uh, Jerusalem. Was there a particular branch of Judaism that maybe impacted your path uh, more than others? So I have uh, just, yeah, I had a variety of uh, Jewish influences on my life. I would say that I really have taken different things from different branches of Judaism. I like, uh, since my mid twenties, uh, late twenties, I've been very solidly in the humanist camp philosophically. I really admire the ethos. It really speaks to me that there's no gap between what, what you say and what you believe. That's something that speaks to me as somebody on the spectrum as, you know, my literalness. And I've always, that's been very important to me, but I've also learned, for example, from the Orthodox communities that I've tended been a part of I've learned the, the importance of establishing uh, community norms and, uh, I, you know, that what binds you together, the things that you do together rather than your beliefs, that uh, you might have a, a variety of beliefs sometimes, and that's really true within the Orthodox community, but you practice together as a community, and I, I really appreciate that. I would say from Reconstructionist Judaism, relatives in Reconstructionist Judaism, I've learned that it's very important to be non-dogmatic, that there's just a wide variety of people out there and make your best effort to welcome them where they are and not push people out. And I've really enjoyed that in Reconstructionist communities. In conservative communities, for example, they really, it's there that the struggle between modernity, liberal values, and traditional traditional Jewish sources is played out uh, most. And I admire the, you know, the leadership and the, the people in the community who really strive to make that work. And uh, it's something ongoing. I would say that from 
renewal of Judaism, I've learned that they're just brave about accepting truths from other religions, from other sources in a way that other movements of Judaism are not. So yeah, I really have learned stuff from many branches of Judaism. Uh, Reform Judaism, I, I've not said anything about Reform Judaism. I've found uh, in Reform Judaism, which might be a little bit ironic, a sense of rootedness. Like one of the first, one of the congregations I attended in Israel was Reform, and it was just like, it was just rooted in Israel. There was an Israeli Reform congregation. It wasn't trying to be, pretend uh, something about itself that it wasn't. And I enjoyed that sense of authenticity there. Yeah, so really, I've tried to learn uh, something from all the communities I have been a part of. Philosophically, for the past 20 years, it's all it's been, I've been a humanist. So while studying to be a rabbi, you not only earned uh, one PhD, but you have two PhDs. So I'm particularly interested in the second PhD, which is in ancient wisdom literature. I'm wondering um, if you've learned anything about your autistic identity from studying text from ancient wisdom literature. Absolutely. And I would say that I taught during, at the start of the pandemic, I started teaching an online class uh, every day that has gone down to twice a week on ancient wisdom literature. And I've gone through the major uh, ancient wisdom literature texts, Jewish texts. And I really, I've appreciated two things, I would say, about ancient wisdom literature. One is just this sense of practicality, the sense of very uh, practical wisdom that's remained fairly timeless, you know, and really, you know, just uh, I appreciate the care of the thoughtfulness of the aphorisms. You know, it's always nice to have uh, good benchmarks, guides about, you know, about how to act in the world, you know, and like as somebody on the spectrum, I felt right and wrong very deeply from a very, very young age, from the time I was a small child, from the time I started speaking, like, I've known this is right, this is wrong. And I would say that books like Proverbs, like, allow me to you know, give a mechanism to think about that. And it's really, you know, appeals to me as, as uh, somebody who is attuned to, you know, secular wisdom as well. It's just, it's just, it's not, the book of Proverbs, for example, is not a religious text. It's a, a text of pra- mostly practical wisdom. And I would say the second thing I learned and that was, I wrote my doctorate on a book called Ben Sirah, which is a, a second century uh, wisdom work written in Jerusalem, probably. And it's over there that I noticed something very interesting. The author of that book, or the primary author, I think there were a number of authors there, was a misogynist. What a misogynist even relative to the world he was living in. So really anti-woman. And yet, in that book... Uh, you have some of the most beautiful odes to a female figure of wisdom. You know, really, you know, uh, imagining wisdom as a woman and uh, with such, uh, moving, such moving odes. And I, I just, you know, something that I learned was, and it's apparent to the title to my book, So Compassionate It Hurts, is the way that love can uh, destroy these boundaries between human beings. Like, love is, there's a saying in rabbinic literature, love destroys boundaries. And I married somebody neurotypical, and we've managed to create a home, uh, you know, a very loving home for our children. And really, it's because of love. It's because I deeply love my spouse, and she deeply loves me. And so we were able to bridge the neural makeups, the gaps. And that's something that I learned from, I would say, from wisdom literature, specifically 
Ben Sirai, and also later Wisdom Literature, Wisdom of the Fathers. And it's really, I think, been fairly, has, has had a profound effect on my life. Now, you've referenced it a few times in uh, this interview about a book that you, and there's one that you recently wrote. Thinking about the title of the book, uh, myself and some of our listeners uh, definitely can relate to that title, which is So Compassionate It Hurts. What was your inspiration to write this book? I had two inspirations, I would say. One was the way I experienced the beginning of the pandemic. I saw people around me suffering deeply, all kinds of people all around me. But I had a very productive and good year, the first year of the pandemic. And that discrepancy was jarring to me. And I had I felt guilty about it. I felt like, why am I having a good time thriving and all these people are suffering? And so this was part of processing that. And so processing for me for, for the last uh, 25 years has been through writing. I started to write a book. And I would say the second uh, has to do with my desire to segue to advocacy as part of who I am. And it has, that has to do with my son, who is on the spectrum, uh, on a deeper bed of the spectrum. And just I just want to be able to be the most effective advocate for him as possible. And so I wrote that this book as a stepping stone to enter conversations such as the one we're having right now, for example enter conversations with other people who are focused on autism and are focused on understanding and accommodation and making the world a better place for people of neurodiversity. And what can people expect from reading So Compassionate It Hurts? Well, they can expect a journey that begins as somewhat, you know, I posed the question at the beginning of the book, like, how, how can this be, right? How can somebody uh, like me, the, uh, uh, somebody who fits my profile be a, a rabbi it really doesn't make sense and i hope that by the end of the book it makes sense it starts you know and it just describes a, a particular journey of somebody on a spectrum everybody is of course different i know why i don't expect people will relate to every single section of my book i just i want to it's kind of me giving back i would say because the way i learned about being on the spectrum was through an autobiography and I feel that the more personal journeys of people on the spectrum and who are neurodiverse, the better. The better, the more people can know about us and, you know, and if they are neurodiverse themselves, really find ways to relate, know that they are not alone, you know, and I feel that that is important. The more books like mine, the more autobiographies and more personal reflections on this, the better from my perspective. So, you know, that's why I feel that it's important for the book to be out there. I don't think that everybody will relate to it, but I, you know, I am hopeful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, the more stories we can get out there about our experiences. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. And how can our listeners learn more about and purchase your book, So Compassionate It Hurts? So it's available on Amazon, you know, or you, know, you could just write that the title there you'll find it or just write it by name and you'll it's one of the first a couple of books that pop up i've written a fair number of books most of them are have to do with bible and liturgy yeah. this will be very strikingly not about, about bible and liturgy um, and i'm hoping because i'm very committed to accessibility i'm hoping to publish this on audible as well so people could listen to the book instead of read it i, I have somebody who's agreed 
in principle to to record the book, and I'm hoping that in the next couple of months that will be available that way as well. So something that just popped into my mind, just kind of like one last question before we're sure. done, is kind of reflecting back into my childhood of going to temple and just thinking about the rabbi and kind of on stage that, you know, about sensory experiences for you. There's, it, it might, at times it might seem like it's quiet, but people can be moving around. People maybe are in your congregation. Now, I'm sure this doesn't happen in your congregation, but sometimes I would get bored. Uh, <laughs> during, during this, Everyone hopes. Yeah, yeah, not, not, with, not with you, of course, uh, Rabbi, but, um, and people might be talking amongst themselves, you know, turning pages, all different types of things can be happening. So what is your sensory experiences like during service? And That's really a very, a very good question. So I am blessedly able to tune most of that out because I have come to a deep acknowledgement that I can't understand most of what is going on in people's minds <laughs> as they, you know, fiddle around or uh, use, uh, you know, fidget toys or turn the pages. Are, are they bored? Are they listening <laughs> to what have they, their minds? Are they not listening at all? So I just, uh, you know, there's a, I just like, I don't know what's going on. And so I say, okay, I'm just continuing <laughs> with what I'm doing. You know, I, as uh, you know, as some people can relate to, I, the way I learned about basic body language was I read books. So I like, I kind of got the basics down, but like really the basics, like I, you know, and sometimes you can get, I can get a feel, oh, I'm not, people are not relating, people are bored, fidgeting, falling asleep. I can say, okay, maybe I have to shift, but usually I am not attuned enough and that, that has granted me the ability to not be apprehensive about it and just to uh, go on with what I am doing. So I'm glad for that. That is, I would say, a blessing of, uh, you know, a silver lining of uh, my inability to read a room. Well, Rabbi, I really um, enjoyed the conversation. I hope people check out your book, So Compassionate It Hurts. And thanks so much for making the time to uh, have this conversation today. Absolutely, Doug. It was, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much to Rabbi Yora for the conversation. To learn more about Rabbi Yara's new book, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. Helping autistic people find community that works for them is such an important part of what we do at Autism Personal Coach. If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit autismpersonalcoach.com for more information about how finding a community that is customized for you and that can bring you joy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.